Amen. Well, good morning. Hey, good morning. Yes. <laughs> Love hearing it. Um, before we get into the word, let's, let's go before him in prayer. Oh, Father, most holy and gracious and precious Father, we lift up our voices to you. We have lifted up our voices to a risen king, to an almighty savior, to one who rules all the kingdoms of the world, to the one who rules our hearts. It is to you, O oh Lord, that we pledge our allegiance. It is to you we commend our lives. So we ask, Father, as your humble servants, that you hear our prayers, that you be pleased with the praise that we give, that you be honored, O oh Lord, by the posture of our hearts, that you bring our hearts to a posture that is willing and is ready to give everything for you. Lord, bring us to a posture, Lord, to receive your word and to live according to your word, that we may not stray from your word. Oh, Lord, cause us to delight in your word. Cause us to delight in King Jesus. We thank you, Father. Oh, Lord, be with the preaching of your word. Be with your people as they receive your word. May it go forth in power and may it change In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So we're going to cover Daniel chapter 6. And as I, as me and Craig has been, have been diving into this great book, one of the things I have been overwhelmed with, and I really do mean overwhelmed with, is with the emphasis on the sovereignty of God. It's almost redundant. It's filled from beginning to end. You cannot escape it. It's the one inescapable fact of Daniel. That God is sovereign even when his people are different kingdoms. But he is sovereign over even those kings. And we've seen several times, we saw three times, if not four times with Nebuchadnezzar, how many times did he confess that God is the God and Lord of Lord of all kings. That his dominion is never ending. How many times have we seen that? And here, a new kingdom has come, and what do we have again? This idea of, of God's sovereignty, is, it's, it's not just overwhelming, but it's also otherworldly. There is no other earthly comparison. Can you think of any other thing that has total and absolute control over everything in this world? How are we to explain it? How are we to describe it? We are left just mesmerized at this fact that there is one in whom everything bends the knee to. It's overwhelming in the sense that to believe is to give up my rights. I have to repent of the silly notion that I am the captain of my own ship and the wind in my own sails and the creator of my future. Do you see how sovereignty impinges upon everything? Even right now, the one thing that's 
in your way to do what you want to do is God's sovereignty. The one thing that keeps you safe, believe it or not, is not your mask. It's the sovereignty of God. That's what it is, ultimately, the sovereignty of God. Which means this, children, if you don't understand what the sovereignty of God is, remember your, your, children's, your little children's song. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. There's, there isn't a square inch of this universe, nor a single molecule or breath in your lungs or trial that you are facing or may face or trauma that you are presently experiencing or fears you are presently dreading or any historical event, all of it is under the direct control of King Jesus. All of it. We see it in our text. What does Darius say? For he is a living God and enduring forever. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed and his dominion will be forever. And the New Testament explodes with this truth. This isn't some truth that is hidden in the corner of Daniel. It is all over the Bible. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The very bone structure, the very fact that you can sit upright is held together by the sovereignty of King Jesus. Or the writer of Hebrews says, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds, being Jesus, upholds all things by the word of his power. All things, everything you touch, everything you see, everything you hear, even the things you don't see, the distant star that our eyes have yet to see is under the direct control and is upheld by the power of King Jesus. Do you see how the Bible doesn't shy away from this fact? It's central. It's central to the Bible. It's central to the gospel. It's central to faithful Christian living in a world that is hostile to biblical convictions. In other words, do you want to live courageously in this life? in this world, then be enthusiastic about the sovereignty of Christ. Do you want to see New Haven change with the gospel, your coworkers, your friends, your family, your neighbor? Then get enthusiastic about the sovereignty of Christ. Do you wish to see justice rule in this land? then be zealous for Christ's sovereignty. And that's the point of Daniel. He's pressing us into this one single fact, that there's one who rules over all, over everything. And he wants us to be filled with this knowledge. And by being filled with this knowledge, we are then fueled to live faithfully and courageously in this world. So, I'm going to give a biblical definition of 
the word sovereignty, and it's a simple one, and I want you to simply repeat after me after I say it. Just follow my lead here. I'll say the first part, you say the second. Or just repeat after me. Our God is in the heavens. He does as he pleases. One more time. Our God is in the heavens. He does as he pleases. And that is our hope. That he's there. He's there. And he does as he pleases. So, Daniel chapter 6, really, I want us to see two ways in which Christ's sovereignty is displayed. First, his sovereignty fuels fidelity and produces courage. And secondly, his sovereignty is evangelistic and produces praise. His sovereignty fuels fidelity and produces courage. His sovereignty also is evangelistic, and from that it produces praise. So let's, let's dive into the text. If, if, you've, if, if, if you've been reading along and following along, this story, Daniel chapter 6, should sound almost like a carbon copy of Daniel chapter 3. Almost like a carbon copy. And the, the logic or the flow goes something like this. Enemies are envious of Yahweh's people. Enemies devise a plan to undo Yahweh's people. Yahweh's people remain faithful. Yahweh's people are put in harm's way. And then Yahweh delivers his people. That's the flow. We've seen that almost in every chapter. But the stories aren't just, they are about God's deliverance, but they aren't. Chapter 6 isn't merely a repetition of chapter 3 as a sort of filler before the main show. Rather, it's supplemental to chapter 3. Whereas chapter 3 teaches us that fidelity can be costly under Babylon. Now Babylon has fallen, and Persia now rules the world. Now the lines in chapter 6 teaches us, as one commentator puts it, new circumstances do not always give you the relief you crave. You may face the same essential troubles. Yes, there's a new regime, but there's still the lines then. It may not be the fiery furnace of chapter 3, but it's certainly the lion's den of chapter 6. And as often is the case, the more troubles we endure, hope and courage begin to wane. And some of you have felt that this year. News outlets may be quieter these days, but the waters of your soul are still loud. Anxiety still rules your heart. Fear still occupies your mind. New administration, same trials. What are we going to do with that? Is the tide in your soul beginning to go out with no promise of it ever returning? Just to leave you with a barren wasteland? How many times must we learn the lesson of Psalm 146.3. Do not trust in princes, in mortal man in whom there is no salvation. How many times must we learn and relearn that truth? And that's what Daniel wants to teach us. So Daniel is some 80 plus years old now. 
We met him in chapter one as a, probably a 15-year-old young man. Now it's some 65 years later. He's gone through three different regime changes. He has seen Babylon come and go. He has seen her in all her glory and in all, now in all her dust. He's faced her loud boasts and threatenings. Now she is as silent as a mound of dirt and no more threatening than a lion's corpse. Persia enters the scene. New circumstances, same problem. God's people remain in exile under godless regimes, threatening the faithfulness, their faithfulness at every turn. So how is Daniel, and how are we, able to withstand this, this tide? And the answer is this, his deep and abiding sense of Christ's sovereignty. His deep and abiding sense of Christ's sovereignty. And we, we see it in his prayer in chapter 2. Let me read it really quick. Daniel chapter 2, Daniel prays, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and epics. He removes kings and establishes them. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. He does. And the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give you thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. And the context of that prayer is this. Remember Nebuchadnezzar was, had a terrifying dream. And, it, and he threatened all of the other magicians that if they weren't unable to interpret the dream and tell him what he dreamed, that he would lop off their heads. And Daniel's first posture is to run to his friends and notice how, what his prayer is filled with. It's filled with a deep sense of the sovereignty of the Lord. Even though his neck, his head was at stake, he knew that his life ultimately didn't rest in King Nebuchadnezzar's hand, but in God's. And what was their prayer? Why did they run? So that they could, might request the compassion of the God of heaven. And this was the first response in, in the face of a seemingly impossible situation. They ran to Yahweh in prayer. Why? Why on earth would they run to God? Wasn't it God who put them in exile by handing them over to Jerusalem in Babylon? Remember chapter 1? It was God who did it. God gave them over, and they ran to him. They ran to him, the one who handed them over. Yes, but notice how in no way, shape, or form this did, how this did not demolish trust. And why? Because the same hand that bruises you is the same hand that will heal you. The same power that hands Israel over is the same power that protects, sustains, and delivers. Let me offer an imperfect illustration. It's imperfect, so please don't hold me to all the details. 
So back in 2003, I'd, I sustained a pretty serious football injury to my left foot. I had three hairline fractures in my foot. So I went to get surgery on it. And the surgeon with a surgeon's knife cut my skin and caused it to bleed. And then with a drill, drilled screws into my foot. Now, if I were, if I were awake during this procedure, I would have been cursing the heavens. I would have been screaming. And, in, and if the surgeon somehow would have left my foot a bloody mess, I would have sued him for malpractice and blamed him for my injuries. He hurt my body. That was his intention, was to hurt my body. But the same hand that sliced me open was the same hand that healed me and sewed me up. I put my entire trust in the surgeon's ability to break me and heal me. That's why I went to him, because he was fully capable of helping me. What we need is a deep abiding sense of the sovereignty of Christ. That's what we need. But before we can fully understand the sovereignty, let's a little, there's a, there's a dark backdrop, should I say, that causes Christ's sovereignty to shine ever more brightly. And there are a few lessons in chapter six that will show us this. First, the world hates you. That's what Daniel says, the world hates you. Verses one through nine. You know the story, if you've read it. King Darius is there, we, we're introduced to him, and he wishes to sustain his kingdom. So what does he do? He wishes to protect all his goods, to make sure he suffers no loss, as this chapter says. So what does he do? He, 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 he puts Daniel and other bigwigs, to use modern term, bigwigs. He puts them in charge over everything. And Daniel begins to excel once again. He begins to excel the others. And this is a cause for concern. So what, what, what do these people do? What do these other envious enemies of Daniel do? They want to accuse him. Certainly he's a politician. He, there must be some dirt. You dig deep enough into any politician's life, you're going to find something. Certainly. But they couldn't. Daniel was squeaky clean. And this enraged them. As a matter of fact, Daniel could have been what we would call a whistleblower. He was the one going about and finding where injustice ruled and bringing light into darkness. And this was a cause of hatred. His integrity was met with hatred. He was impeccable but hateable. And they looked every which way because they can find no grounds to accuse Daniel. No corruption was found in him. He was squeaky clean. So they said, okay, let's do something else. Let's do something else. Well, there's an application here. There's an application here. Aren't we pressed in this way? So that very thing, that the next thing that they did, excuse me, I, I missed this point. The next thing that they did, they were going to accuse him at the very grounds. They're going to meet him with the law of God. They're going to test him there. Certainly Daniel will be faithful to us, God. If we can change the law, we can accuse him. 
And this is where we get to our, our application. Aren't we pressed this way? Isn't this where the battle is waged? You know, the world doesn't hate you and me because we go to church. They're fine that we're here. Or because you read your Bibles. They're fine that you have the Bible up on your phone. They'll produce it for you. They're fine with it as long as you stay silent about injustice or define justice on their terms with their vocabulary or idolizing their dreams and their aspirations, pursuing their goals and bow to their convictions. You can have all this. You can have all this religious stuff as long as it doesn't impinge upon our way. No, they hate you because your allegiance is at a cross with theirs. Your convictions are at odds with their convictions. You see, faithful Christian living is dangerous because the world hates you. It is dangerous. Though it is a light to a dark world, it is also salt to a gushing wound refusing to be healed. As Paul says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so it was with Daniel. His enemies sought to corner him. Will he bend the knee to Persia and forsake his God, or will he be faithful to his God in the face of sure death? And they, know, they knew the answer. That's why they doctored up this scheme, this ruse. He will remain faithful to his God, which, as a matter of fact, is ironic. It was actually a tribute to Daniel's integrity. Without them knowing it, they were actually saying, this guy is onto something. They're tipping his hat to him. So what was their ruse ultimately? Well, this is what it was. They're going to get the king to make this new law, a law which will both be to his advantage, the king's, the kingdom's advantage, and to their own personal advantage against Daniel. Verse 7 says, the king should establish an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. What did they want to do? They wanted to make Darius the one mediator between God and men for 30 days. No petition, no prayer to anybody else except to Darius, except to him. What was Daniel to do? Then they pressed the king to sign the decree so that the law becomes unchangeable and impossible to revoke. Once the king signs this document, not even his own veto power can undo the decree. No act of Congress, nothing. No filibuster, nothing. Absolutely nothing. So much for earthly sovereignty. This is slapping the face of earthly so sovereignty right here. Darius was going to be able to do nothing once he signed it. There's an application here also as we look back at the whole of 1 through 9. As I said before, faithfulness is dangerous, and we can't forget this. We cannot forget this. We will be fools to forget that even though it is a gracious thing that God will oftentimes or sometimes grant us favor with the world, we are always in danger of turning our favor with the world into an idol. And this is how it looks. We see favor with the world as a sign we are doing something right. If the world agrees with us, then we must be doing something right. If they don't bother us, we're doing something right. If they love us, 
we're doing something right. And this is earthly logic. And the gospel turns this idea on its head. It flips it upside down, or should I say right side up? Let me give a few pieces of, of evidence. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 5 in regards to tribulation in this world. He says, and not only this, but we exult in our tribulation. That's odd. That's odd. Rejoice in tribulations. Knowing that tribulations produce, not subtract, produce perseverance and perseverance, proving character and proving character, hope and hope does not disappoint why? Because the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. It's as though Paul says, if you want to exult, to rejoice from the bottom of your soul, if you want to persevere, if you want to have that proven character that leads to hope, if you want to experience the love of God poured into your hearts, poured out to, into your hearts, something must be emptied in your hearts in order for your heart to be filled up with him. He says, if you want that, you can't have it without tribulation. You can't have it without it. It's the logic, it's the mathematics of the gospel that in a good and sovereign God's hands, tribulation is for your good. Another piece of evidence. Different letter, same writer, Paul. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outward man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For this momentary light affliction is producing. Again, not subtraction. It's adding. Producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparisons. It says, though Paul is saying, you know how Christ is preparing you for glory. A glory that is weighty and eternal, that far outstrips, outstrides, and outweighs the afflictions you face right now in this moment, in this life. It's by this, by sovereign use of your afflictions. By sovereign use of your afflictions. Faithfulness to Christ in a world that hates Christ will indeed, you will suffer. You will. You have. And young Christian, I can promise you, if you remain faithful to Christ, he will sustain you, but you will suffer for it. Your goal is not to be popular and then win them over. It's not to be popular and then win, them, and then win your friends over. It won't happen. In order, to be, in order to be popular, you have to compromise. And it's not the business of Christians to compromise when it comes to issues of the gospel and the biblical convictions, it's not. The world hates you, as, John, as Jesus says to his disciples in John 15, 19. And the courage to press on in faithfulness will only come as we press into a deep and abiding sense of Christ's sovereignty. Also, we see in, in verses 10 through 11, not only do we learn that the world hates you, but also notice his response. He prays. And I've called this pray for the peace of Jerusalem. This is Daniel's response. Once he hears, and it's a shocking one. It's actually a very shocking response. Now, 
prayer may not be all that shocking to us theologically astute people. Yes, we pray. We should pray. I pray today. I pray last I pray over my meals. That's what we should. But if we rush past this section just to get to the miracle of the hungry lions, then we really miss the miracle of this text and the shock value. In verse, there are three lines of thought I want to point out and see them as lines of application. The first is trying times or praying times. Notice Daniel's response. What does he do the moment he hears that this injunction has come upon them? Upon him, should I say. What does he do? He runs quickly. It's almost as though you, can, you could see him running. Oh, this injunction, I cannot pray to God. I'm going to go pray. I'm going to pray. Daniel's really being a, a, a rebel. Worthy of an offense in the eyes of the law. When he was in a pinch, he prayed. Because trying times are praying times. And it's amazing. When, when you look at how quickly the text goes from this, this immovable, unchangeable law to Daniel running to this prayer, it really is the backdrop. It really, it really shines. It really is the shock value. That Daniel knew that if I get caught praying, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. His first response is prayer. Secondly, set your face towards his promises. So we see his response in prayer, but notice his posture in prayer. Notice what it says right here in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10 in the later part. It says his windows were open toward Jerusalem. Don't skim over that fact. Don't skim over that. And it should be even more shocking. Jerusalem is in ruins. It's in ruins. If his mother and father weren't dead before he left, they're certainly dead now. His friends, the temple, everything. And yet he's facing there? Why would the text emphasize that point? Well, he's just in line with what was commanded in 1 Kings chapter 8, where Solomon commands the people that when they are in exile in a foreign land, they are to face Jerusalem and pray for its peace. And it's all based upon the promises of God. It's all based upon his promises that one day he will restore them. One day he will restore them. One day he will redeem them. And even while they're in the midst of their exile, that he was going to be with them. So yes, set your face towards his promises. As you pray through your trials, you pick up your Bible, go to a chapter, find a promise and pray it. Just pray it. If God said it, will he not do it? Set your face towards his promises. And lastly, It's selfless prayer. Now, we don't get the content of what Daniel prayed. We don't get it. Daniel very well could have prayed for deliverance. He very well could have said, oh, Lord, save me from this hour. 
the same way Christ prayed, oh Lord, if it be your will, save me from this hour. So it wouldn't be outside the bounds of, of interpretation to suggest that. But we're not left without anything. Now we'll get to chapter nine, and obviously in the next few, in next few months, should I say, at our rate. Um, but chapter nine gives us a hint. It's, it's the entire chapter is a, is a chapter in Daniel's prayer. So what it is, 90% of that chapter is a prayer from Daniel. And what's striking is what it is filled with. We don't have time to go through and look at it. It's a whole other sermon in and of itself. But go home tonight, get, get your marker, favorite color, and just go highlight all the different ways you see the sovereignty of God shown in his prayer. It's filled with it. Even as he's repenting of sins, he is depending upon the sovereignty of God to heal them. And it's important that we understand this. Because what it shows, and this is, this, this is fascinating, it's actually, it was quite convicting. It shows that Daniel was a man of prayer before he endured trials. He had a prayer life before he had a tragedy. This prayer was not just a response, an uncommon response from Daniel. No, the very posture of his life was one of prayer. Christian, do you want to be ready for trials? Pray now during these good times. Pray now. Dive deeply now. Don't just wait. You will not become some robust theologian just because trials come. Trials have the power to turn you into a little devil. They have the power to turn us into heretics. If it weren't for the sovereignty of God. Pray now. So if chapter 9 is reflective of, if it says anything about chapter 6 here, it said, Daniel was a praying man. But what's even more striking is the entire prayer is not just praying for God's sovereignty, it's also praying for God's people. Everything is in the plural. Everything is about the other, about God and about God's people. It's intercessory prayer. How is it that sovereignty pushes us into praying for others? You may have experienced it. As you're on your knees confessing sins, have you, have you not thought about other people? As you're praising God, as we lift up your voices to say a word of praise, have you not thought of other people? I mean, I find that fascinating, that sovereignty made him, the sovereignty of Christ pushed Daniel into this selfless life. And it's not only in Daniel. We see it again. Paul says, listen to what he says. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. For this reason, and here's the intercessory part, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, there's a sovereignty, that he will grant you according to his riches 
of his glory. And here's the intercession. Here's what he's praying for. To be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. There's a sovereignty. Do you see how the sovereignty of God pushed Paul to trust in it and to pray for God's concerns? To be concerned with the welfare of his people. To be concerned with the state of the church, the purity of the church, her repentance and her sanctification. That's where sovereignty pushed him. Not to blind trust, not to inner self-reflection. Our deep sense of Christ's sovereignty will not only lead to courage and faithfulness, but as I said, to to be concerned for the things of God. Now, we spent a lot of time on this part about sovereignty fuels fidelity and produces courage. We've seen it in Daniel's prayer life. We see it in his response. We now look, want to look at God, Christ's sovereignty and its relation to evangelism and praise. And Christ's sovereignty is evangelistic and it does produce praise. In this section right here, verses 19 through 28, the end of our chapter, can be titled this, Salvation Belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's much easier to see, though it's no less impressive. The hatred that Daniel's enemies exude and the inability of Daniel to save himself is actually the dark backdrop which allows Christ's sovereignty to shine brightly. Remember, remember how strong this injunction was. There was absolutely nothing he could do. He had, what he had in, in front and behind him was this immovable law and the hatred of, of, of his enemies. So he had. This, is, this wasn't a democracy where he could just call up his local politician to say, fight for me. There was no lawyers he could call up and said, this is unjust. No, he was in the hands at this point, ultimately in God. And that's the dark backdrop which allows sovereignty to shine. I mean, Paul does it when, in, in regards to our salvation, doesn't he, in Ephesians 2? Before he gets to the but God part, no, he says, you were dead in your trespass and sins in which you once walked. And he lays it on us. And then once he gets to verse 4, the but God, like, wow, it, that is glorious. He would save me. He would save me. And this is the point, and my goodness, is the point. Christ will get all the glory, every ounce of it. Not a single droplet of glory and honor will be withheld from him. That he allows us to undergo trials is no mere game in which we are merely pawns. No, he brings us into his great joy. He produces in us great joy. How? By us beholding his sovereign work. Beholding it. And one can argue that the, that the only argument that would, that would have convinced King Darius that God is sovereign and worthy of praise is actually the faithfulness of Daniel in the face of death. And after that, God's saving miraculously. 
But that was the apologetic there for Darius. And again, this is not just some hidden doctrine tucked away here in Daniel chapter 6. Its foundation is found actually in Exodus. Consider it. Here are the Israelites at the banks of the Red Sea. An army behind them, a massive sea in front of them. It was either death by sword or death by drowning. That's what they're left with. And what does Moses tell them? He says this, do not fear. This is awesome. Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. Pause. Think about that for a moment. Hear the sounds of the, of the chariots coming your way. Look in front of you and see an impassable sea. And then hear Moses say this. Put yourself in that moment. And what does he say? For the Egyptians who you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent, while you do nothing. What was the result? When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servants, Moses. Salvation led to belief and praise. Again, you can go on. It's all over the Bible. So in other words... Or should I say, to reemphasize, Christ's sovereignty does produce, is evangelistic and it does produce praise. He did it for Darius. He did it for Darius. The miracle wasn't just God saving Daniel. It was also giving Darius a glimpse, shedding light, opening Darius' eyes. That's the miracle too. That's the miracle there also. The very fact that here's this pagan king confessing the greatness of the God of Israel. That's a miracle. Never think (laughs) that salvation is anything less than a miracle. Well, there's one final point. And this sums it up, and we, that you see the title there, Every Knee Shall Bow and Every Tongue Confess. And we read it there in, in Philippians chapter 2. And I want to reemphasize this, that Christ's sovereignty is no mere backdrop to a major play in world history. It's not a, it, it doesn't play second fiddle to either large historical events or minuscule events that happen in your life day by day. His sovereignty doesn't start where our efforts begin. Nor does he fail or cease to accomplish his plan where our efforts end. His sovereignty isn't impotent simply because, from our vantage point, which is always as narrow as our news feeds or our phone screens. It isn't simply because the world looks like it's going to hell in a handbasket. Jesus is no less keen today as he was in Daniel's day. And my goodness, if we would only filter all our fears and our anxieties through the lens of Christ's kingship, imagine the courage we would have. Imagine the courage we would have to face fear with faith, 
to love our neighbor, to jump outside our comfort zones, and to go in those places that are not popular to go to. To do things that the world would say, that's silly. Why on earth would you quit your job to go do missions? And I'm not recommending that anybody do that necessarily, but just imagine that. Just imagine that. I'm going to move into this neighborhood. Just imagine that. Just trusting in the sovereignty of Christ that he will provide for everything. But there's more. The single fact of history is this. All of history is headed towards one culminating moment. The day that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That's where your life is headed. And as a matter of fact, your life is framed by two historical events and two only. The day Christ hung before men for your sins and the day we will all stand before Jesus. Your life will be bookend by those two realities. The day Christ hung before men and the day we will all stand before King Jesus. And look what Paul says. Just a reminder what we read earlier. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And as we in Christian, feel your knees. Feel them. One day they will bend to Jesus. And if you're older and you're like, my knees haven't bent quite well in a long time, one day that glorified body, its knees will bend. Willingly. And if you be not in Christ, you'll be forced to bend at its glory. You'll be forced to. But those knees will bend one day as you are the posture of humility that we willingly get on our knees to confess our sins. That will be your joyful posture one day. This time, no more confessing sins, but confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Take recognition of your tongue, especially as we get ready to enter into the Lord's Supper. You will partake of Christ by digestion. That bread and that wine or juice, as you chew the bread and your jaws crush it for your blessing, you should be reminded that the jaws of justice crush Christ instead of you for your blessing. And consider the, 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 the drink as you guzzle it all down for your nourishment with that tongue. You guzzle it all down for your nourishment. Christ guzzled down every ounce of God's wrath so that you wouldn't. And that tongue will one day will be unloosed to confess that Jesus is Lord never again to be hindered by sin, 
or death. That is where sovereignty is taking us. Amen.